Hey guys, Zilla here, producer of the podcast. So with all the crazy news about the coronavirus and the developments that are still being made day by day, if you don't know, Jeff and I, we record out of San Francisco, which as of March 16th, 2020, has been designated a quarantine zone. Some things are going to change with this program. You'll still be getting episodes weekly, but you might notice some change in audio quality, video quality, whether you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or watching on YouTube. This is kind of uncharted territory. So hopefully on your end, not much will change. You'll still be getting all this great content. We are maintaining a positive outlook on this and don't want to put a sour note on these episodes, you know. I'm currently working to get guests to help spread the best information on how to stay healthy during these trying times. Not all our upcoming episodes will be based on the virus. Uh, We have quite a backlog, but just wanted to preface that. So the show will go on. It must go on. So let's get right into it. I'm excited to do an in-person podcast today for the H4N podcast. I have Dr. Haley Teasdale joining us in our San Francisco headquarters. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Your current role is the research lead of Halo Neuroscience, and we've had a couple conversations with co-founder Daniel Chow over the years. So excited to learn more about your academic background as well as the latest developments with Halo. I know that you have a quite a deep background in transcranial direct stimulation beyond just the human performance space. So probably be a good entry point to start with your background. Why was this an interesting area for you to pursue as you were growing up? There's so much to go into in that. Um, but I want to start with proprioception, right? Because that word might not be familiar to a lot of people, but it just blows me away when I think about it. So proprioception is the sense of where your body is in space. So it's made up from, you know, senses from your skin and muscles, your inner ear and your vision. And putting that all together helps your brain to understand what your body is doing in the world. That to me is endlessly fascinating, but also informs how we can then improve our performance. And I guess to summarize everything that I've done so far in my career, it's really understanding how we interpret the world around us and how we can optimize translating that into movement. And going right back, this is like what my PhD was based in. So looking at proprioception in people with Parkinson's disease, it wasn't well quantified, but people with Parkinson's disease actually lose proprioception really rapidly. This is really hard because you can imagine you lose proprioception, you don't understand where your body is in space, and this makes these people more at risk of falls and also makes it really hard to just do day-to-day activities. So my PhD was using brain stimulation, transcranial direct current stimulation, combined with exercise to try and improve the physical performance and the proprioception in these people. It was really, really fascinating to see how that translated to improvements in balance. Um, so obviously you can understand if you understand where you are in space with proprioception, then that helps with your balance. By the end of one of the studies I did in my PhD, I had a participant not using his walking stick anymore because he'd regained so much of his balance. I had a participant who was out playing soccer on the weekend with his kids, with his grandkids, I should say. Um, so, you know, and it was just changing their whole demeanor because they were getting so much more out of their lives now that they had their proprioception and their balance back. And then it came to the end of the study. And that was really, really hard to say, you can't come back into my laboratory. I can't give you brain stimulation and these specialized exercises anymore. For me, I just really wanted to find a way that we could help these people experience the improvements that they'd seen with brain stimulation in their own homes. It's just really closing the loop for me to be the lead scientist at Halo now, knowing that we can take something that's so powerful and important and put it into the hands of everyday people to help them improve their performance. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And I think it's a nice closing loop in terms of translating clinical research into applications that people can buy off the shelf. Um, But I want to also understand and dive into a little bit of your thesis work. But before that, I do want to get your experiences, why do you want to become a scientist? What gravitated you towards neuroscience? Um, I mean, I've always wanted to be a scientist. Like I was one of those kids with a toy microscope, like looking at bugs and pieces of carpet. Like I loved science from a very young age and that was very evident. I think I'm just a naturally curious person, um, always asking a lot of questions. Um, and I love to read and I love to write. And I think people don't often think of those as things that contribute 
to a scientist, but they are. It's a big part of our job. And it got to university and I knew I wanted to study science. And I started taking some neuroscience subjects and I absolutely fell in love with it. And this really aligned with another part of my life. At the time, I became really unwell and I was really struggling to get through university. And I started relying on different ways of studying and different ways of taking in information and being able to translate that into, you know, high marks at my university. I wanted to do well, but I didn't have much physical capacity to do so. At the same time, what I was studying was how to train the brain. I had was studying for a degree in neuroscience. And that was when I really saw the power of what I was studying. I was able to see the application in my everyday life mm. and it became much more of a passion for me. You know, I can see in real life changing my own brain. Do you have a specific example what learning through auditory lessons versus visual i mean like what were some specific examples that you kind of hacked your your learning capacity i mean like everyone is so different um for me it was determining what time of day and what sleep schedule would really elevate my capacity to study i found out that if i woke up at 4 a.m and started studying then and i was in bed really early obviously to get up at 4 a.m every morning that was my peak time to study so between 4 a.m and 9 a.m those were the best hours for me. Certain things like eating really well, um, but also then the actual techniques of studying. So I would experiment um, listening to my lectures seven or eight times because I found that I had trouble, you know, actually remembering the little pieces from those lectures that might be important. Different ways of taking notes and refining notes. And this is you know, I might have seemed like I've gone a bit far here, but I would cover an entire wall and connect the dots because I thought a lot of what I was studying was the brain and anatomy and I was able to relate how different parts of the brain connected with one another mm. across a whole wall so it kind of looked like one of those conspiracy theory maps by the end but you know I like was the just beautiful mind like the <laughs> just like the giant conspiracy walls and lines but being so yeah. physical with the information and really being able to track how my thought process was going was really useful for me. So the whole thing was a giant experiment, but I got the degree. So I'd say it was a successful yeah. experiment. I think it's it's cool because I think it's very self-aware and I think more people should be more thoughtful around the meta process of learning, right? People mm-hmm. learn the subject at hand, but learning about how you best learn is probably even higher leverage, higher, higher order. Totally. And everyone learns so differently. And I don't think we can all just do the same university course and study in the same way and expect the same results. That's not how it works. So um, I learned a lot about myself. You know, one of our main topics on this podcast talking about nutrition and nutrition is so personalized based on your genetic baseline versus also your goals and what outcomes you're trying to target. And it's obvious that nutrition should be personalized. I think the notion of personalized medicine is becoming more and more mainstream or that should be the future of medicine. So taking it to learning seems obvious mm-hmm. that we should be learning in different bespoke ways fit for ourselves. And I think that segues nicely to proprioception because there's like this meta self-awareness around how you learn, but also the self-awareness of how you, you, you perceive the, the, I guess, the location of your body or the movement of your body with beyond just your sight. And we were talking about this a little bit before going live here around me feeling a lot more personally attuned to that because I've been doing a lot of Olympic powerlifting training and be much more aware of body weight, um, what your body positioning is. You know, I've also been doing a lot of calisthenics. Definitely some practice or some art to that. And in reflection of how I perceive my body previously, my sense is that in modern civilization, modern culture, we're very unaware of our body positioning now. I think if you look at the average person walking around you're always hunched bent over and you're always seated Mm -hmm. and there's no evolutionary drive to be aware of your body like you're not going to get hunted down by animal or you don't need to be really self-aware with your environment or your own body position this is like a topic that i think more people should be more thoughtful about obviously there's applications for therapeutic uses like parkinson's i'm just curious to open up the discussion topic around why is it valuable to have better proprioception are people generally decreasing over time has our entire cohort of our current civilization decreased in our awareness beyond other previous generations yeah i mean that's opened up a really interesting question for me that i've never really considered before 
is, you know, how is proprioception changing over time in people? So not just across the lifespan, which we know we have quantified how it's yeah. changing over time. The generation. But between generations. Yeah. Um, it's just made me think of, you know, even the process of wearing shoes. Yeah. Um, you know, barefoot walking provides so much um, sensory feedback to your feet, but we wear shoes now and yeah. we wear shoes all the time. I personally hate going places barefoot. Um, you know, so how, how is that changing? How our proprioception um, is being used over time? Want to have more answers to that. We just haven't been measuring proprioception for long enough to know the difference. But I think, so some of the measures that we use for proprioception, are we basically take away vision. So getting people to close their eyes or they're blindfolded and reporting back on either mechanical um, tests or um, kind of like a more of a observational test to see if people can match joint positions. So move your foot to here, close your eyes, can you move it to that spot again, mm. seeing how accurate people are. Um, and these are the kind of tests that we've been using and we've been developing them, quantifying them. I think we have a much better understanding now of how to measure proprioception that I would love to see us track that over time as people change in their habits. Yeah. I'm not sure how we can go backwards, though. Yeah, I think it's lost data. Yeah, I mean, as a scientist, I always feel like we could have gathered more data. Yeah. <laughs> this is definitely one of those times. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely interesting things around generational cohorts, even just for, like, metabolic panels for blood markers today. When you get the range of, you know, this is a healthy normal of, you know, LDL or, you know, in, uh, you know C-reactive protein, what are these benchmarks based on? Well, they're based on 25 to 75 percentile of the general American population or a standard population that, that the lab tests. Mm -hmm. And one can make the argument that that's, that benchmark is based on a metabolically unhealthy cohort because two-thirds of Americans are already overweight going towards obese and one-third of Americans are already pre-diabetic, diabetic. So are these biomarkers that we're benchmarking our lab results to even good things to measure against, right? And I think it's yeah. like we don't have data on uh, the prehistoric human who is running around hunting and gathering. Yeah. That could look very different from modern humans. So that's just like one, I think it's like a very similar, I think, argument around lost data. And I think something that's been interesting recently that I've been looking a little bit at is that the generational decrease in testosterone in men. So on average, men our generation have lower testosterone than their fathers and their grandfathers, and it's unexplained why that's happening. So I wouldn't be surprised if proprioception, again, no data, it's complete speculation has decremented because mm. no one cares, no one practices it anymore. Especially as more processes become automated, yeah. we're doing less things manually than we have done in the past. We're even maybe cooking less. We're, yeah. you know, every everyday tasks that, you know, actually are training our proprioception without us, you know, consciously training proprioception. Yeah. Um, that we might be starting to lose it. I'm really interested in this. You've got me thinking. <laughs> it's going to bug me all yeah. night now. I think I'm going to be reading about this. Good. Yeah, let us know. Research into it. I mean, so I know that sometimes the action itself. Uh, drives learning. So, like, for example, if you smile, you drive the emotion of being happy, right? That's an interesting result. I just wonder, is there data suggesting that, you know, it sounds like as you suffer through Parkinson's, you lose proprioception. Is there an inverse effect where if you train, and it sounds like you have some data where you can prevent the decrements of proprioception loss, does training some of these functions improve performance across other cognitive domains? I mean, it all comes back to neuroplasticity. So we're really relying on the brain's ability to change so that when we're training someone to try and improve their proprioception, you know, they have the ability to do so because their brain is able to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's difficult. So with Parkinson's disease, we can't actually change the progression of the disease itself. But the brain is so remarkable because even if that part of the brain is unable to be used, the neurons have been lost we can reroute around that. And that's what we're doing is kind of forcing the brain to think, okay, what's another pathway I could use to get this job done? And that job is sensing where the body is in space. Um, so in that way, we can give something back to a person that they might have lost 
without unfortunately changing the progression of the Parkinson's disease itself, which is a whole nother kettle of fish that, yeah. you know, it's another challenge for us. But this translates a lot to, to anyone that wants to improve their proprioception. So really, you know, a healthy, a healthy brain has a bit of a head start. I mean, we all lose our proprioception over time. Um, you know, adulthood is probably where we're at our peak, somewhere between teenage years and, you know, our 40s. Um, but over time, we start to lose our proprioception and we all have the ability to, to train it and improve it. Um, and I think that's just beautiful. Yeah. Thanks, brain. <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing anything specifically to train proprioception at this point? I know there's been some work around cognitive training and we can maybe open up that can of worms. But yeah, I'm curious in terms of proprioception training. What does that look like? Is that yeah. something reasonable? I mean, absolutely. There's um, obviously being so passionate about proprioception, yeah. I've brought a bit of that to my job at Halo. Yeah. Um, so we're in talks with the Australian Institute of Sport at the moment, okay, the University cool. of Canberra, at looking at rehabil injury rehabilitation for high-level athletes. Um, it's really it's inc incredible that proprioception can actually be a predictor of injury and also a predictor of whether a person will go professional or go pro. Mm. Um, so there's a lot we can learn from proprioception, which shows how important it is that we rehabilitate it after an injury. Um, we find that a lot of athletes might seem to be at the level in injury rehabilitation where they're ready to re-enter the sport. But on a neurological level, that rehabilitation is not complete. So there's definitely more we can do. And for us, it looks like we can train proprioception and maybe that can add some benefit to the athlete. So that's something that we're really interested in um, bringing in the element of brain stimulation, um, boosting neuroplasticity, combining that with proprioceptive training and seeing how it helps with injury rehabilitation yeah. in high level athletes. So we're talking about basketball players in this example. Got it. And I brought up cognitive training because there's been some conflicting results in that specific domains, whether mm -hmm. these sort of brain training games uh, actually translate across broader, more general tasks, right? Like if you're playing a game that, you know, you're, how many numbers do you, can, can you remember, uh, you know, working spam memory tests, does that actually translate to broader, higher level cognitive tasks? Is there more research or more conclusiveness there? I think we're definitely not as far along in the cognitive space as we are in the motor space. But that's exciting to me because there's so many questions that I think have the potential to be answered. Yeah. We've seen some interesting results with a different type of brain stimulation, um, transcranial um, alternating current stimulation. So um, this is a bit different to what our product, the Halo Sport, does with transcranial direct current stimulation. It has shown some interesting results in older adults with, um, you know, cognitive deficit, um, problems with their working memory, and that by, so alternating current it works on the different like brain waves, so, yeah. so this synchrony of waves in your brain, um, and it shows that if, if you can help to synchronize those brain waves again, that it can get the working memory of older adults back to the working memory of a young adult, right. um, which is fascinating because that result says, you know, we can reverse brain aging, brain aging yeah. right which is super exciting but it's one of the first studies to show that so i think there's a, a lot more to be done in in replicating those results um figuring out what that means figuring out what does that tell us about the brain and how can other types of brain stimulation like tdcs transcranial direct current stimulation be able to have a have a say here what how can yeah. we use that to help yeah no i think it's the perfect segue let's talk about brain simulation as a category broadly. Mm -hmm. So I think you already referred to a couple different types. There's the direct current, there's alternating current, and folks who maybe remember from Edison and Tesla, these are kind of forms of transmitting electricity. But now in this case, we're applying these kinds of different types of currents to the brain. How would you just segment and categorize and, and make a taxonomy for the space? I mean, okay, there's like a lot of things you can do to simulate the brain. Electricity is one obvious, mm -hmm. you know, one direct way to do this. I've had people looked at, I don't know, acoustic simulation. I'm sure there's people have tried all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. What does the I universe mean, look like here? It's a wide and complex universe. And yeah. I think, you know, using techniques like electricity, which is the language the brain is already speaking, and all these other types of brain stimulation are really attractive because we seem to have less side effects than we do 
with some types of medications and other ways that we can treat disorders. So the idea of being able to treat something non-invasively and, you know, safely, you know, that's the dream. So we're seeing a lot of different types of stimulation popping up. I guess the biggest two areas would be invasive and non-invasive. So we're talking about invasive, you know, implants that are inside the brain that require neurosurgery, um, things like deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease would fall into that category. And non-invasive, so things that sit on top of the head, you know, not breaking the skin, I would say, is non-invasive. So you've got things like a TMS, like a transcranial magnetic stimulation. You've got your TDCS, TACS. I don't mean to just throw a bunch of acronyms yeah. at you, but so we've got you know electricity, Our magnetic. There's also vagal nerve stimulation. Yeah. You know, you could go outside the head and yeah. look at um, something I'm really interested in, which is haptic feedback. So how can we deliver sensations to other parts of the body? to help trigger our senses um, and in that way trigger certain areas of the brain. Give some concrete examples for people. Elon Musk has a thing called Neuralink, which would be considered an invasive implant. I'd like to ask my understanding of what they're contemplating. My understanding is that's an invasive, they're gonna implant electrodes directly into the brain. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with it at this stage. Again, a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, From what I can understand is, There's a lot of people investigating how we can connect brains with computers, Um, these brain-computer interfaces. How can we close the loop? How can we take information from the brain and stimulate it based on what the brain is already telling us? And I think that closing the loop is that next step where I think we're not too far off doing it properly, and that's really exciting. Yeah. So going to, like, the non-invasive stuff, so really above so outside the skin or outside the cranium or outside the bone, which is probably like one, I guess one way to think about it. So I think you mentioned a good point around electricity is kind of the way the brain already communicates, right? So I think in our last conversation with, with Dr. Dan Chow, he was talking about, we're talking a little bit about action potentials and how that's triggered. So I think it would be nice to kind of review why is electricity the language of the brain already? Mm-hmm. We'll start there and also let's talk about a little bit of the magnetics and the other ways to simulate the brain. Yeah, sure. So at a single cell level, a single neuron level, um, a single neuron receives so much information from thousands upon thousands of other neurons. And some of the information will be, you know, negative and some will be positive. And it's, I like to think of it as peer pressure. If it gets enough information to say it should fire, it will. And when it fires, that's actually a firing of electric current, right? So it's reaching a threshold and it fires. And when so it's kind of like uh, you need enough activation energy and it kind of jumps around. And once it goes across the threshold, boom, you get a... You get the spike yep. and that's the fire. And then basically, so that will fire and then it'll pass an, a message to the next neuron. Yep. Um, so what we want to see is neurons firing in synchrony and make, forming pathways. So this could be a neuron firing from your big toe, making right. it all the way up to the spine, into the brain. And that's how we receive a message. Yep. Um, lots of neurons firing in a row. So that's what's happening on a cellular level. I think let's define yeah. how neurons work and yeah, review yeah. that and then build into how the simulation side works. Yeah, sure. Right, because there's electri- the electrical component of neurons, but also the neurotransmitters, right? I think people are familiar mm-hmm. with serotonin and dopamine. How do these two systems work together here? Yeah, so the neurotransmitters are what's happening between the neurons. Yeah. So when a neuron fires, there's this little gap between the neurons and the neurotransmitters are released into that gap. They bind to the next neuron um, and they're the messages that are saying yes or no, the positive or negative. Um, and, you know, so once they bind to the next neuron, it's a cascade of events, which, you know, adds up to a yes, I'll fire or no, I won't fire. And so that's how the neurotransmitters fit into the, to the whole equation. Um, they're super important, you know, endlessly complex, and we're still learning so much about so many different types of neurotransmitters. Um, what I find really interesting is that with brain stimulation, you aren't introducing anything different. You know, we're not introducing something that could have a negative impact on a different part of the body or, um, you know, we're we're delivering a mild, with TDCS in particular, a mild electric current that's actually not enough to make those neurons hit the threshold and fire and spike, but charge them up so that they are just below the threshold, ready to go. So what I love about that 
is it's on you. What do you want to improve? Yeah. It's up to you to make those neurons fire. And I love that about it because, you know, it really puts it on you um, to make that choice. So that leads like, you know, just the kind of the devil's advocate question, which is that, okay, we're either lowering the threshold or increasing, you know, basically reducing the amount of yes is needed to yes. f- fire the, the neuron. So then it becomes a target selection problem, right? Like you want the right neurons to potentially have a lower threshold to fire. Yeah, Right, absolutely. because if you have everything firing, in, it, it's pure chaos too, right? So it's like... For sure. So what is the balance there? You know, what what is the kind of the nuances in terms of, okay, it seems reasonable that you... Okay, well, I guess part one, like why is it even a good idea to reduce the action potential or the threshold? And then two, how do you balance between overstimulation and understimulation? Right, yeah. So, I mean, it's... It's really important to make sure that the right neurons are firing, but that's why TDCS is a really good candidate for this, is that it's not making everything fire under the brain, uh, under the area of the brain that the um, stimulator is sitting on. So, I mean, that for me is, you know, if you're, if you're heading into training, you want to do the best possible training, you know, the, the cleanest reps using the exact skill that you want to get better at. Um, if you're an athlete, a lot of our users are musicians so you maybe you're playing a musical instrument and so you want to be doing exactly what you want to improve um, by making those neurons fire reducing the threshold so it's easier for the right neurons to fire when you're doing the right activity the more you can make them fire the more they will build, be built into your memory you know you'll gain muscle memory and that's how that pathway works so i guess it really is with tdcs um really safe because it's still on you to make them fire they're not going to fire on their own unless you're doing an activity to make them fire yeah um that's different for different types of brain stimulation so things like tms do have the ability to make neurons fire um, and that's why tms there's a lot more um fda approved treatment for a lot of conditions but it is done in a laboratory or a medical clinic where there is a lot of tracking to make sure that we're getting the right area because it's really important when you're actually making the neurons fire, forcing them to fire, that, yeah. that we're making sure that the right neurons are firing. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So your distinction there is that the TDCS, you still requires the user to do the clean reps to trigger the, the firing of the neurons, and hopefully that builds up some sort of more durable connection that will trigger more again easily down the line for sure i mean you might look really good if you use a halo sport sitting on the couch but if you really want to see results you have to do the work as well so it's there to prime you to do the best possible training um yeah but you have to do the training right and it's almost (laughs) extra important to make sure the training is done really well because then the downside is if you train improperly while primed then you actually double down and learning bad technique would that be correct i mean it's totally correct yeah. um but it's the same with any form of training yeah. i mean you can easily train the wrong technique what we love about halo is it helps you train faster if you're training the wrong technique you'll, you'll learn train. it you'll do it fast and if you need to change it or adjust your technique yeah. you can do it faster yeah. so there is some room for error yeah yeah, and I think I think that's like the right nuance, right? Because I think it's like okay, you're reducing the threshold, so you're gonna be fi- you're gonna be firing these uh, neurons more quickly, more readily. You're gonna be building up these these longer chains more readily. So for users, make sure to have really really clean reps then, and yeah. like clean technique. Otherwise, you're not just you're like backfiring on like the whole point of doing all this training. Yeah, but you know what? I kind of love that because, you know, it's really forcing people to be really conscious with their training, you know, you sh- and you should be doing that anyway, yeah. right? You should be um, trying to keep the best form you can. Again, I think everyone goes through the cycle where you just want to like throw up number of reps or like number of pounds or whatever, just kind of like hit numbers. And as you get a little bit more experience and wise, it's all about clean cleanliness of technique. That's just much more useful. Yeah. And I mean, if you're using the right technique and you're training the right technique, and reinforcing those pathways, you'll still see gains in strength and endurance yeah. because you are using the right technique, which means you're using less energy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's more efficient. The brain is known to be super plastic. I'm curious in terms of the latest literature and, and your understanding there, how does neuroplasticity evolve over time? I mean, if can you keep rebuilding, repaving these, these neural pathways at infinitum? Is there some sort of 
natural limit where it's like you've learned 17 things. It's like harder for your neurons to adapt to the 18th iteration. Mm. What is the latest literature there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think of it. But um, I think too often when we think of neuroplasticity, we think about acquiring new things, you know, because that's what we care about is acquiring new things. You know, the other half of neuroplasticity is forgetting things. So your brain is changing to get rid of all the stuff it doesn't need. And that's happening constantly. That's why you can't, you know, do a cartwheel and it's just as good as you did when you were a kid. It's because you haven't done a cartwheel in a very long time um, without reinforcing those pathways in the brain your brain will naturally trim them because it needs to use up all of that space that it has for what's important to you at that point in time. So I think it really comes down to training, you know, what's important to you. You have a lot of landscape in the brain to learn, you know, almost an infinite number of things. But if you don't keep reinforcing those things, you will lose them. Um, So I think it's important to think about loss in that context. And then diving a little bit deeper into the uh, physics of how TDCS works. I'm curious in terms of how you guys think about the amount of current you pass through. How do you know, you know, the number to, you know, get through the, the skull? You want to, you know, reduce the threshold by some level. Mm-hmm. Has, have you quite quantified percentage-wise how much you're reducing the threshold, what is optimum in terms of a threshold reduction? How much is that quantified? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm still working on to this day. Yeah. This is exactly what we're working on at the moment is really quantifying um, how much electricity is getting to the brain and what impact that's having. Um, I think that it's still a moving beast. We're still trying to quantify it. Um, a lot of the earlier research, so, you know, there's 20 years of brain, like transcranial direct current stimulation research that's happened before now, so it's not just us that is doing this. But a lot of the early research was focused on behavioural outcomes, so, you know, stimulating a brain and seeing how it affects the person's performance. What we're really trying to focus on now is measuring the brain itself, the brain activity, and seeing how that differs you know, in different stimulation conditions to see if we can optimize exactly how much electricity we need to get through the brain, how much is getting through, um, and how we can best combine that with activity to see improvements in performance. So it's been quantified to the point that we know that it's really safe, that we understand how much electricity should be getting to the brain. And that's why we've built in the levels of stimulation into our headset that we have. But I think there's heaps more to learn about how we can optimize that um, and personalize it, yeah. you know, because everyone's different. Yeah. You know, we have different head shapes. Um, you know, maybe our skulls are a little bit different in thickness. Our hair's a bit different. Um, there's a lot of factors which, you know, that's just on the outside. Like, how different are our brains? Right. Um, is your motor cortex a little, like, a couple millimeters off from where my motor cortex is? I mean, yeah, and is, is, is there that kind of variance? For sure. And, you know, I'll show you on the headset, but the primer band that we have is wide enough to allow for a margin of error. So, you know, everyone's motor cortex is slightly different, but we should cover basically everyone with this type of um, primer band or this electrode width um, because we know that everyone's different. But wouldn't it be great if we could you know, personalize it beyond that. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. Yeah. 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 That's like the ultimate iteration of this. Again, like we're talking a little bit about personalized medicine or personalized nutrition. You'd want personalized stimulation on exact parts of your brain that you'd want stimulated. Yeah. And, you know, it does come back to self-awareness. Like we were talking about with yeah. proprioception. Sometimes you don't know what area of your brain you might need stimulated yeah. you know how are we self-aware how do we how do we know if our proprioception might need some work yeah. or maybe we need a certain type of cognitive stimulation right. to get a boost so i feel like there's a lot of room to be, help people become more self-aware with yeah. brain stimulation you know what do you actually need to improve yeah that brings up an interesting you know, maybe a, a side route here because obviously the main focus of the halo set is focused on the motor cortex but obviously there's other parts of the brain that you might want to stimulate, the visual cortex. I mean, have people experimented? Do you have anecdotes around people trying to stimulate different parts of their brain? Mm. Could you know, have people try to stimulate their visual cortex? Can Do people claim that they're maybe seeing more acutely? Is mm. that even reasonable? 
The visual cortex isn't a common um, goal for people to stimulate. Yeah. Um, a really popular area is the frontal region um, for a lot of cognitive applications, but also sensory processing in yeah. the frontal region of the brain. Um, we're also seeing some really interesting research in the parietal cortex. So if you go above your ears and just a little bit backwards, okay. um, so kind of <laughs> just on the like horns of your head, yeah. um, the parietal cortex could have some really interesting applications um, for cognitive things, but also for focus and, you know, that kind of drive. Um, and we're really interested in that. Well, I'm really interested in that um, because I think that that's something that a lot of people want to improve on. I know I want to improve on my focus. Right. I mean, I'm so easily distracted. Yeah. And as you know, I'm a very self-aware person and always looking to improve. Um, right. yeah. yeah. Interesting. And I know that there's also just the you know the cortex is kind of the the most outer layer of the brain but it's also like deeper i guess more brainstem stimulation i mean then i think the question is like are, is the current going deep enough to stimulate some of the more inner structure of the brain mm -hmm. have people looked at just trying to go that far deep into the brain my understanding is that a lot of the sort of external stimulations more focus on the surface neurons of the of the brain yeah so this, so transcranial direct current stimulation yeah. is definitely focused on the outer layers of the cortex. Yeah. Um, but, you know, our brain is so interconnected. Um, we kind of see it as stimulating one part of a very complex circuit. Mm -hmm. um, so we can't rule out influencing those, um, you know, deeper regions of the brain with stimulating just the outside. Yeah. To have a more direct effect on those deeper regions, we really do look to invasive forms of brain stimulation. So that's where if we want to reach the basal ganglia, we need to perform neurosurgery and implant the electrodes inside the yeah. brain. Um, so it, it does get really tricky when we're trying to go deeper. Right. What I find really interesting is the potential in combining different therapies. So there's been a bit of research around, you know, can we combine brain stimulation, cognitive training, and physical exercise to kind of, you know, exercise the brain as a whole yeah. to see some improvements in cognition. So exercise can help us with some of those internal regions of the brain. Our brain stimulation can help with some of the outer layers of the cortex. And in combination, maybe we could um, see some really interesting improvements in cognition. Yeah. That's got me interested. That's just much more ecological, right? I think in real world, you have an ensemble approach is no one's ever going to just do one thing and be like, okay, this is my silver bullet. Everyone's always trying to you incorporate everything together. Mm -hmm. Obviously we've spent a lot of time on the direct current. I'm curious in terms of whether it's in your research or at Halo, where were the uh, sort of pros and cons? I'm sure you guys looked at other techniques like alternating current, magnetic uh, stimulation. What, led you to focus on the, the you know the tdcs as preferred method was it the, just the body of existing literature plus your internal research what were some of the factors there yeah i mean safety is a really big factor um safety and effic efficacy so you know making sure we have something that works yeah. the strongest literature for that is tdcs 4000 over 4000 research papers that have been published in tdcs um this recent paper that I spoke about earlier, the, the memory, working memory paper with alternating current, is one of the first really strong results that we've seen. And I think that we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that space as it expands. Um, TMS is, like the magnetic stimulation is brilliant. You know, it's so effective for so many conditions, yeah. but it's expensive. Hmm. It's only available in the clinic. As I said, you know, you really need to make sure that we're stimulating the right areas. Yeah. Um, one of the members of our scientific advisory board, Nolan Williams, uh, he's the director of the Brain Stimulation Lab at Stanford. Hmm. He's done some fascinating research into using TMS um, to treat um, depression, hmm. you know, and that is brilliant. Um, I guess what we're really focused on at Halo is bringing technology to um, people that they can use in their own homes. Yeah. At the moment, TMS is not able to be used in the home. So How come? It's just... You need giant magnets or it's just like it's like an MRI machine, essentially? It's really big. Um, obviously, like I said, we're trying very carefully to get the right spot. So there's normally a big arm that's used to hold the device yeah. um, to make sure it's still and we're getting the right spot. Quite often, a clinician will do an MRI or some kind of um, functional, uh, sorry, structural scan. Yeah. 
to make sure they're targeting the right region. Like you said, maybe the motor cortex is a bit further back in that person or forwards, you know, whatever it is, it might be a couple of centimetres, but it actually does make an impact in TMS. Um, TDCS, we have a little bit more room to try and cover that whole region. Got it. Yeah, I think some of the depression work is pretty promising. I know that in some of the conversations that I've had with folks in the defense military community have talked about some of the exciting early results in PTSD-like conditions as well. So mm. that, that when you mentioned depression, I think it definitely kind of makes sense in terms of maybe some like cross-translatability there. Um, and then you also mentioned vagal nerve stimulation. We haven't really explored that topic a lot. It definitely comes up, with I would say, within the biohacking human performance community where people talk about vagal nerve stimulation. What is that and what is the data there? It just definitely seems to be more on the speculative side given my very, you know, cursory understanding of the space where uh, people have made claims around anxiety or stimulating mood with vagal nerve simulation. Hmm. What do you what do you make of it? So it's not my specialty, that's for sure. But um, and it's I think one of the more emerging techniques. So like I said, you know, the idea of stimulating nerves or stimulating the brain is super attractive. Um, so I can understand why there's so much varied research happening. And yeah, there is are some interesting applications. Um, yeah, but I'm not familiar enough with them, I don't think, to speak to it. Okay. Yeah, I think Zilla just reminded me. I believe this was vagal nerve stimulation to trigger the inner ear to cr- create the per- perception of movement. And they had some mm. data or claims around increasing weight loss, which was kind of an interesting application of, uh, of, of, a, of a brain simulation technique or a nerve simulation technique. I'll definitely have to check it out. Yeah. So I'd love to hear some of the latest uh, results or projects you're working on with uh, at, at Halo. I know that obviously a lot of the initial audience were athletes, uh, potentially folks in the defense military community. What's the latest up there, updates there? Any exciting news? Man, there's so much exciting stuff going on. So... I mean, we've spoken a lot about physical performance and athletes, yeah. which is super exciting. And, um, you know, a lot of people might know us from some of our um, big partnerships that we have with, you know, NBA, MLB, um, you know, golfers on the PGA Tour, things like that. But I, what I am finding really interesting at the moment is around 20% of Halo users are musicians. Mm. Um, so we're working with the Berkeley College of Music. Um, to kind of dig deeper into the kind of effects that brain stimulation can have on a musician. One part of that that's really fascinated me was this idea that brain stimulation could foster creativity, you know, boost the amount of songs you could write in a week. You know, it's not just about fine motor movement. I think there's a lot of other really interesting parts of that that I'm really interested to explore um, with Berkeley. So I'm really excited about that collaboration. Yeah, interesting. So it makes sense that the motor, fine motor skills make sense, right? That's very, I think, natural from thinking about the motor cortex. But you're thinking that this could actually potentially boost creativity. So I imagine that's not necessarily going to be triggering the motor cortex. You're probably targeting other parts of the brain then, perhaps. Well, we see that as a flow-on effect from, like, stimulating the motor cortex. Um, Mm. But this is a very early observation um, and something that we want to look into. Uh, and really determine where's the best place to stimulate. Um, yeah. How can we best see those results? And how do you measure creativity, right? right? It's complex. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe just explore that a little bit more. I mean, I think they're like reaction time, working memory, high resistors making these are quite measurable. But if you were to speculate or come up with a notion to, to measure creativity, I'm sure people have been trying to do this. How, like, what are the best efforts to define a quantitative measure for creativity? Are there a few broad approaches that people have been trying to to demonstrate? I'm not sure I could recap them for you in great detail. Yeah. In this particular experiment, we were really looking at song, songwriting capacity mm. and how that was influenced during this stimulation. Um, and that's what we were using as a measure of creativity in that, in that um, experiment. But, you know, that was a really surprising result. And now we, it's time to dig deeper. Interesting. Is there? Are you guys going to write a paper out of that, or is it going to be kind of a internal white paper? Um, we will once we gather more data. Okay. So you know, really understanding the mechanisms there, I think, is important yeah. um, before we publish. You know, it's just something that's we get a lot of interesting little findings, and then it just leads to my job, which is digging 
deeper, spending several months gathering data and analyzing yeah. it to see what's actually happening. So athletic performance was kind of your initial focus and sounds like music is this surprising but promising use case. If music is there, you can imagine art, painting, mm -hmm. a number of creative aspects. Anything else that you've heard from your community or you're particularly excited about given that, that interesting nugget of new information? I mean, it really blows me away, you know, that diversity of the reasons that people pick up a Halo sport, right? It's um, anything that you want to improve your motor skills, it could potentially have an application in, right? Yeah. Um, I think the idea of drawing or painting is really interesting to me, um, particularly if there is some, like, point of creativity, but just the, f the fine motor skills, um, you know, a lot of my work in proprioception, I was also stimulating the motor cortex. So, you know, even understanding where your hand is in space, could that be stimulated with this type of stimulation? Maybe. You know, there's a lot of questions in that that I'd, I'd really like to dig into in, in our research. What I find is just so many people, it's their New Year's resolution. It's normally either to learn a language or to learn an instrument. Yeah. Um, it's normally on the list somewhere. And, yeah, if we can help people learn an instrument faster, that's it's pretty yeah. awesome. I mean, it sounds like there's a myriad of applications. Are there things that you wouldn't recommend people try brain simulation for in terms of acquiring new skill? Or is really the literature and the possibilities, everything could be boosted in terms of brain simulation at this point? I mean, the, I, I see the door is open. Okay. I, th I feel like we don't know all of the applications yet. I think it's really important to reiterate that the Halo Sport device is not approved for use in, in medical conditions at this point. Right. So, you know, the, the work in brain stimulation in conditions like Parkinson's disease and stroke, um, those things are still very much in the laboratory. Complete that research and see what potential applications there might be. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing I'd say not to use it for. Um, but in terms of improving motor skill, you know, have at yeah. <laughs> the sky's the limit. Yeah. What I'm really like a weird one might be um, enunciation or using the muscles in your mouth in different ways. So oh. maybe you want to learn to whistle. Like you know how how could we help with that? I don't like know. Learn accents, right? Like it'd be cool to just drop <laughs> an Australian accent right now. <laughs> right. Maybe I need to do it to help tune my American accent yeah. now that I'm living in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's like one of the things that we were talking actually a little bit before going live it was this notion between therapeutic or medical use versus what I think is like just like a growing category, which is that you want to improve healthy performance. You want to optimize. You want to be the best version of yourself. You know, the, the early ways I was thinking about the space, you know, some five, six years ago was that we're all on the spectrum of performance, right? Some of us are deficient in some areas and there are clearly people that are super normal in, in certain areas and we're all just trying to be more along the spectrum towards the positive direction again this is not talking about any specific product or technology but do you just see that this line being more and more blurry in the future where who defines even deficient or normal or super normal hmm. right because it's arguable that like LeBron James should be the normal human and all of us are like deficient. Uh, <laughs> like obviously that's, you know, that's an extreme statement, but one could try to posit that as the norm. I kind of like to see it in the opposite kind of view, which is that we know more now about the power of our brains than we ever have. In my view, literally everyone is super normal. And I think that we can just use our brains better all the time. I hate to think of anyone as deficient because even with, you know, 80% of your brain tissue is dying, your brain will still try and reroute around the damage and try and help you function normally. Mm. You know, it's pretty unstoppable and I find that pretty inspiring. So we're all superhumans. Well, we could be, right? I think, well, that's definitely like an optimistic way to look at it, right? Yeah, it, it is I'm interesting. No, but I think that's like a, <laughs> definitely a much more positive way to look at it, which is that we all have potentially some hidden superpower. It's just, I guess, some people's natural talents are more efficient at being economically productive mm -hmm. or entertainment productive or sport productive. Yeah. Right. Going back to the kind of blood testing you were talking about earlier, a lot of our standards are set on 
a very specific type of person that yeah. isn't generalizable to the population. Um, most of them actually set on males. Yeah. Um, so, you know, understanding what is a normal female meant to look like, right, or perform like, you know, that's, yeah. you know, we actually don't have data on that because so many experiments have been done on males only yeah. in one particular region of the world, which doesn't necessarily extrapolate to the rest and of the world. mainly white men. Yeah, didn't want to say it, but yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a fact, right? It's like it's, Mostly yeah. white men yeah. um, that are normally pretty well off. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't apply to everyone. Yeah. So I think that that's really interesting to me is, you know, really understanding, you know, what a, what a healthy, genuinely healthy person looks like in today's society. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's interesting in terms of just like how do you think science and science research will look like moving forward? Because I think there is interesting, just broader discussions around replicatability of a lot of research. Um, how does industry and academia and governments and nonprofits all play together to push forward research? Uh, the notion of peer review, uh, which is actually a relatively recent phenomenon in the history of science, where some critics of peer review call it more like peer injunction, where you can't really have like the bold ideas come out because it's actually somewhat of a competitive landscape within academia in terms of you know, very small communities and kind of everyone knows what everyone else is working mm. on. Um, as someone that's come from an academic background and now you know, in industry, what do you make of the reality, uh, the landscape of how people are doing science now? What do, you, what do you sort of make of all of it? I mean, I think the age of, you know, we can communicate now in ways that we've never been able to before. Yeah. So the way we're doing science now, you know, people being able to travel across the world and share their work at conferences, you know, publish online and everyone in the world has that article that day yeah. is very different to how science has been done in the past. And in a way, it's speeding things up. You know, we're gaining knowledge faster, but we aren't really built for this. The academic system doesn't seem to be built for the technologies we have now. And I think now that everyone in the world, not just academics, has access to so much more information that we need to make sure that the general population understands how to interpret the information that they're being fed by scientists and the media when the media are talking about science, right? And I think that that's got to be a big way that we change going forward is how we work with the general population because they have access to so much information that normally, you know, a long time ago would have been restricted to scientists in their little hidey hole labs, you know? Um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of how religion, the dynamics of religion have evolved, right? Mm-hmm. It used to be that the priests were the only people that could read and you would have to go through your priest to learn the word of God. Now people can read. It's like, okay, like we have a different relationship. And I think that dynamics, I think, are capping to every institution. Yeah. Everyone can actually get the raw information, which is good, but also could be really bad. To your point, like if you don't know, if you don't have the baseline training to understand, Mm. then you have really bad interpretations or you get tricked by people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to maintain skepticism when you really want to believe in yeah. some kind of result. Yeah. Um, but that's something that we learn as scientists is to be skeptical, you know, to challenge things, to test hypotheses. Yeah. Um, that's not something the general public learns. Like that's just not, not what we learn, um, you know, in, in high school or whenever it is that we learn to be skeptical. I don't know. Um, yeah. And I think that, I think that we could all use a healthy dose of that sometimes. Yeah. Um, you can make the argument that the traditional schooling system is anti-skeptical, where you they kind of select for characteristics of compliancy and, and deferring to authority, mm-hmm. right, in, in some sense. Yeah. And another thing is that when a scientific result is published that, you know, contradicts a previous result, that is really normal in the scientific process. You know, mm-hmm. we learn new things and we change the way that we think about a problem, you know change the way we think about the world but that can look to people as if we don't know what we're talking about yeah you know that we have we we, we're not all on the same page and to be able to communicate that the complexity of the scientific process i think is really important but it's also i would say that it's also describing scientists as like a monolith like as you know there's just actually different competing theories for certain cutting edge phenomenon yeah 
So it's not even to say that there is like a science block that's just like some truth giving entity. There is actually just a little bit of competition of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So I think people, the layman needs to understand that it's not because science is wrong. It's just that for some of the cutting edge, people are still figuring this out. Absolutely. And and we love that. That's thrilling to a scientist. Yeah. But I can understand that that might be scary if you didn't understand that, you know, it's all part of the process. Yeah. Because I think people actually appreciate the nuance. I think mm-hmm. people don't actually appreciate being talked down towards. I think people are actually generally interested in some of these concepts and would yeah. rather dive into the nuance and be like, okay, what are the pros and cons? What is the positive data? What is the negative data? And let me think about it and, and make a decision and, and re- do my own research. Yeah, I love um, I love allowing people to interact with the work itself or the yeah. scientists themselves. Yeah. I think that's really valuable. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's just a, a, a kind of what I think Silicon Valley has done well with products, right? Like they, Silicon Valley has a reputation of moving pretty quickly and getting user feedback. The future of sort of any kind of innovation is just actually touching reality more and more often. Mm-hmm. And I think it's both on the layman side as well as the scientist side where Oftentimes, science ultimately touches ground with affecting people's lives. Absolutely. I mean, I learned more from my participants with Parkinson's disease about Parkinson's disease than any scientific journal or class that I took. You just, I learned so much about how that disease operates and how it affects their life. And if I hadn't have taken the time to learn that from a person who wasn't a scientist, then I wouldn't be here. You know, I wouldn't see the importance of building things for real people yeah. and um yeah i totally agree it's so important yeah. that you know both sides have something to offer so uh, obviously we talked a lot about improving performance but one of the areas that i've become more and more interested in is rehabilitation uh recovery that seems to be actually more important for both elite performance as well as everyday people just getting injury as, as they as they age and, and progress through everyday life. You mentioned a little bit about the predictability of proprioception to predict recovery rates. I'm curious in terms of your application with either brain simulation or Halo Neuro set, uh, the, the headsets. Any interesting findings, data there that could be beneficial, not on the performance side, but also on the recovery rehabilitation side? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's something that I really want to bring to my role at Halo. Um, At this point in time, we haven't been exploring rehabilitation in that sense, Um, but we are starting to set up some partnerships to explore that with um, some external research partners. Um, I think there's a lot to learn. There is some research out there that's already in this space. You know, we didn't come up with the idea, um, but we just really want to see how that it it could be used as a a product. Um, So, you know, it's... It's complicated and we don't have our own results. Um, But, yeah, I think it's a really exciting area that, you know, we've got evidence from different trials using um, TDCS over the motor cortex in conditions like stroke Mm. um, where you can really see the difference in motor rehabilitation um, between stimulation and no stimulation. Um, So just having that opportunity, the brain stimulator there, to boost neuroplasticity, to prime the brain to learn, can be really valuable in rehabilitation. Um, rehabilitation can be a really long process. You know, changing a brain is not easy. Yeah. Um, and people can plateau. You know, really, you don't see any improvement for a while, and that can be, you know, really not encouraging at all. And you start to think, what's the point? Yeah. And that's one of the most challenging things about rehabilitation is getting people to comply and do it and make sure that we actually get to the end and that final result, which is yeah. recovery. So if we can do something that speeds up that process we might not see as many people give up on their recovery. I think a lot of people give up on the exercises their physical therapists give them because, you know, they just aren't seeing any improvement or it's taking too long or whatever that might be. If we can offer any opportunity to speed that up for people, I think it's worth exploring. Yeah. My understanding is that some stressful or like serious injuries, your brain will get essentially a fear reaction towards going back to that similar position. So I'm just like thinking, does something like TDCS kind of retrain your brain to not fear or not stay away from some of those more extreme positions where you got yourself injured in the first place? Mm. For some of these like chronic pain, 
type yeah. type conditions. I mean, there's some research that's being done now in like TDCS for for chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to be said for boosting neuroplasticity because those responses, those fear responses, or the pain responses, you know, they are based on you know a network of neurons. And if we could change that pathway, then perhaps we wouldn't have the fear response or the pain response. Um, what's difficult is, especially with the fear response, is that that is when, in one of the deeper regions of the brain. I so see. that's yeah. the amygdala. Yeah. Um, being able to reach that with this type of stimulation is tricky. Yeah. What we can do is improve skill with um, by stimulating the motor cortex, um, You know, making sure that we're using the right techniques that could prevent further injury. But in terms of changing that fear response, yeah that's trickier yeah it's deeper (laughs) yeah uh, it's it's interesting and i think that's where like the nuances of the regions you can actually target start to play into importance especially i think you're talking about this sort of an ensemble approach having multiple mechanisms multiple interventions that drive the outcome Mm -hmm. that you want and i think another area that i don't have a lot of experience in or expertise in but people have been looking at hallucinogens psilocybin where they're starting to be approved actually for clinical research where people are trying to override fear responses or, or learned behaviors in a similar way, right? I think mm-hmm. one of the positive John Hopkins studies was using psilocybin to help people quit smoking. I think that's a very positive study. So to me, I, I kind of look at obviously different safety profile, different history, different whole different type of baggage. But what we're talking about is essentially interventions that can change how your brain learns and hopefully we can all we can have a number of techniques that people can adopt it's all about a holistic approach to improving yourself or improving on a task um and we think that brain stimulation and neuropriming is a essential piece of the puzzle yeah i want to zoom back a little bit in terms of kind of going full circle to your parkinson's research one of the i think sad updates within i would say the broad pharmaceutical community communicate around neurological conditions is that a lot of the big drug programs have failed and a lot of the big pharmaceutical companies have pulled funding for new drug development there i think within the nutrition kitchen diet community people have been looking at nutritional interventions and there's early data showing that ketogenic diets or exogenous ketones might be helpful for some forms of Parkinson's. I'm curious in terms of, again, going away from sort of performance consumer use case, going into more regulated medical use cases. Do you think that because these diseases are so complex, like it's like a simple drug targets don't seem to work that well. Why did you see brain stimulation be helpful in your study? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it just because it's just more fundamentally nuanced than just targeting some neurotransmitter and and hoping that drug kind of fixes the problem? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's two kind of parts to that. And, you know, the drug pathway is so complex. Yeah. You know, obviously we want to make sure that a drug is safe before we're giving it to people to ingest. Um, but within that, there's so many stages at which a drug can fail. And I think a lot of the drug failures that we're seeing, especially around medications for Parkinson's disease, are based in the fact that we still don't really understand what's causing Parkinson's disease or how it's progressing and why everyone presents so differently. And I think without understanding, you know, the underlying pathology, we are having a difficult time treating it with drugs. To me, the more I learn about Parkinson's and how complex it is, you know, that just tells me that we need something to improve quality of life for the people that have it right now. Yeah. You know, because in t- 20 years' time or 10 years' time, hopefully, we might have a medication which doesn't just address symptoms but actually slows or stops the progression of the disease. Yeah. But we're still a long way off. Interventions like brain stimulation that can help with physical rehabilitation really, you know, can give back to that person's well-being. And that's, you know, that's what it's all about. You know, you just want to be happy and doing what you love, you know, even if you're sick. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, and it sounds like you're definitely. It's definitely a a, a, a part of that overall outcome of the disease that I think makes a lot of sense in terms of mm. like retraining on I think on the physical side. Um, one of the things I had in my notes was that you guys seem to have like a lot of exciting athlete partnerships, and I think that's been one of the coolest parts of my job with the podcast, also with our companies, like getting to work with cool athletes. Any 
personal favorites that you've gotten to work with? I don't know if you're personally a big sports fan. I have to admit that I'm not really a big sports fan. So like when I talk to athletes, I don't get like starshook, which <laughs> might make me better at my job because it's like I just treat them as a normal person and I'm not like fanboying. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious in terms of, you know, in your current role, getting to work with elite athletes that, you know, we all adore and, 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 and cheer for. Any any particular highlights that you can share? There are some stories that I love um, at the moment. One of our partners training for Tokyo 2020 is a Paralympic Paralympic swimmer named Jamal Hill. Um, I really like he's, you know, fastest in the US. He's just so driven because he understands that, you know, he's capable of so much. His brain is capable of so much. And, you know, I really align with him on that. And I think that he's really inspiring. Um, I love to ski. So, you know, being able to see some of our results for the U.S. ski team, um, being able to help them reach their targets so much faster with brain stimulation is just really exciting to me. I'm terrible at skiing. I love it, but I'm terrible. So I'm like, now I've got this guy to help me. I was going to say, yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of snow and mountains in in Australia, right? Well, we can blame that, but I think I'm just bad at skiing. (laughs) Any updates on the product lineup? I know that you guys, this is the second edition of the halo set i have the first edition um back a few years ago anything exciting down the product roadmap i know that you have a special offer for our uh, podcast listeners what can you tease in terms of the upcoming developments on on, on the product set I'll try to do my best without getting in trouble. Um, (laughs) But I'll just say that, you know, at Halo, we're really interested in um, other applications of this kind of technology, TDCS, um, particularly cognitive applications. Um, And I think that's probably a poorly kept secret at this stage. You know how excited I am about cognitive applications. Um, So keep an eye out for that. I'd encourage people to just follow us on social media, check out our website. Um, I think there's some really exciting stuff coming out at Halo in the next year. And I'm so excited to be a part of it. Yeah. So where do people follow along? So there's, uh, I'm sure you guys are on all the social handles, but where do people find you personally and where do people follow the company? You know, company, you know, Halo Neuroscience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever your poison is. Um, You can follow me on Twitter. Um, My handle is HeyBrains, H-A-Y Brains. (laughs) That's embarrassing but (laughs) that's what it is hey it's catchy so i'm sure we'll get some followers um but yeah keep an eye out because yeah there's definitely some really interesting you know stuff on the research side you know and um really cool partner stories that we have that we're really excited to share and then i think we actually are partnering for a special promo here i know that we're doing a little bit of a collab and Mm. and 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 partnership launch here so do you want to tee off the special offer sure so we're really excited to offer your listeners a discount um 75 off the halo sport 2 um so you can use the code hbmn 2020 yeah definitely definitely worth a pickup especially if you're interested in performance whether you're an elite athlete or someone looking to get just getting strong at the gym definitely worth taking a look and if that 75 dollars helps get you over that action potential take advantage <laughs> of that. that threshold yeah <laughs> Thanks so much for the wonderful conversation. I think it was, uh, I appreciate going to the science and the, te- and, and the mechanisms of actions as we build up towards technology and a product. I think our listeners appreciate just really understanding like the ABCs of all the basic terms. So appreciate you taking the time to dive in and, and talk about your personal research and, and, and the underpinnings behind the mechanisms here. It's been awesome. You've made me think about so many <laughs> interesting things. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.